Christ, may the Lord be with you. Well, welcome to North Holland this morning. Whether you be in sanctuary or online, we are glad to worship both um, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer as we continue to worship during this season of Lent, preparing us for the celebration of Easter. Um, a few things we have just announcement-wise this morning. Um, one thing that we've just appreciated, it's always nice to get good feedback, um, not microphone feedback or other bad feedback, um, but one thing that's just been very appreciated is the stained glass um, lessons that we were put together for our um, children and youth and families. So we've got more printed. They'll continue to be sent out electronically, um, but we just want to, uh, for one, we put in the footnote who really put it all together, um, so we're very grateful for someone named Pam and her great work. Uh, but we encourage you to uh, just grab one of those and follow along for our Sunday lessons um, just about stained glass and particularly on the one that is behind me that we'll see during the sermon. Um, another just a note of thanks is for the Nurtured Heart Training for Allison Brower. Uh, I know another group went through yesterday online and all is well. So um, definitely, um, if you saw maybe who went through it, if you're curious about it, you can always ask Allison Brower or ask one of the people who went through what they think. Um, but we'll probably be doing that again. 
Um, one of the reasons I'm down on center stage, I know I'm not as well lit, but we have an introduction to make this morning. Um, I want to call Juliana Kempema forward. Um, Juliana is joining us as an intern from Western Theological Seminary. And so, um, for one, just wanted to hear, where are you from, Juliana? <laughs> and, and kind of what brought you here? Yeah, um, yeah my name is Juliana Kempema. Oh. Is it should be on. What's Isaiah? It is on. Yeah, it's on. So. Give us just a second. This is a really good way to start your internship, <laughs> just like to feel that like brief adrenaline burst. So otherwise we can, uh, if Anna's mic is working, should we just go grab stage or try it again? Oh, go to Anna? Okay, perfect. Anna, can we, uh, you can leave it there. We'll just... Uh, We'll just take stage, sorry. Hi, my name is Juliana Kempema. I am... There we go. There we go. Um, yeah, my name is Juliana Kempema. I am from Hudsonville, Michigan. Um, I was at Calvin Seminary, and I just transferred to Western Seminary um, this semester. Um, so yeah, this is my second year seminary, but um, yeah, I came here, and I'm very glad to be joining you. Oh, good. And we'll continue to um, we'll have Juliana um, and kind of our, our team of Pastor Audrey, myself, Juliana, and Aaron Coster, uh, just working on both um, worship stuff, but also some focus on discipleship. Um, I have just one other kind of bonus question to ask you. Um, when you first left home and went to college, where did you go for, for starters? Um, I started at Northwestern College in Iowa. <laughs> And it's spring break because Anna DeKreider is here singing, so sorry, we're just owning a little bit of the Northwestern love. And uh, where did you transfer from again? No, I'm sorry. I, I know th there are other Calvin alum here, so we're not gonna, I'm not going to push my luck. But uh, uh, Juliana, we're glad to have you with us. And, uh, and so North Holland, as you continue um, to embrace um, interns as we learn and grow, um, give a greeting to Juliana as well, and um, hope this will be a great fit for your continued learning. Will you welcome Juliana? Friends, you rise? Uh, for our call to worship this morning. Greeting. Oh, yeah. Does that come first? It does, right? Late, okay, late, late. I haven't finished my coffee yet. Um, uh, friends, in just a moment, I'll lead us in our call to worship. But before I do, would you take a moment to greet one another, those are beside you or those sitting with you, if you're joining us online? Let's greet one another. Nothing but joy in the house of the Lord. All right, let's hear this call to worship. It comes to us from Psalm 33. The psalmist says this, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. 
He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Friends, indeed, may God's unfailing love be with us, even as we put our hope in him. Let's sing together.
Friends, you may be seated. The biblical Psalms feature several remarkable expressions of what is called lament. Lament. In these laments, the worshiping community expresses grief and frustration at the brokenness of the world, even in situations in which the community is not directly responsible for the brokenness in the world. Lament witnesses to God's desire for honesty in worship. No experience in life is too difficult to be brought before God. A lament is an act of faith in which the community of faith turns to God as its only source of comfort and hope. So in our confessional prayer today, we are going to offer up a prayer of lament together. Let's pray. Christ our King, our world is overtaken by pain and sorrow and by its many fears, worries, and insecurities. We witness suffering, confusion, and hardship multiplied around us, and we find ourselves swept up in these same anxieties and troubles. We are dismayed by so many uncertainties. Do not be distant, Lord. Let us neither ignore our pain, pretending all is okay when it isn't, nor magnify our pain so that we dull our capacity to experience all that remains good in this life. Give us strength, God, to feel this lament deeply, never to hide our hearts from it. And give us also hope enough to remain open to surprising encounters with joy. Amid the pain that weighs us down, give us courage, O Lord, courage to live fully, to love and to allow ourselves to be loved, to remember and grieve, to honor what was, to live with thanksgiving in what is, and to invest in the hope of what will be, for this is who we are. We are a people of the promise, a people shaped in the image of the God whose very being generates joy, yet whose very being weeps and grieves. So we, your children, also lament our losses, even as we simultaneously rejoice in the hope of their coming restoration. And here in that tension between what was and what will be is where we are. Let our hearts be surprised, shaped, warmed, and remade by the same joy that forever wells within and radiates from your heart, O God. Amen.
as we have sung those words of Psalm 126 together, and now we turn our attention to God's Word, we're also going to dismiss our three-year-olds through third graders down to children and worship so they can uh, begin their time in worship center downstairs, and we will continue our time up here in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. So as our three-year-olds through third graders uh, make their way downstairs, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We were in Mark last week as well, and so if you find the New Testament, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Mark is the second Gospel. And as we covered last week, there's so many things about Mark's Gospel that are just stated so simply. They are clear-cut, straightforward. They're meant to be easy to understand, to keep the plot moving that we come to the cross of Christ. And so today we turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And as we do so, 
We'll hear Jesus talking with his disciples and an episode of Jesus talking to the crowds. And as we do so, last week's word of the week was simple. As we read this text together, I invite you to consider this word for this week, loss. Try on that word, loss, as you read the words of Jesus, as we hear Peter interact with Jesus, and as we continue to listen to Jesus explaining the way of the cross. But before we do so, before we read God's word, it is our custom to pray for God's blessing upon the word. So I invite you to, at this time, join me in prayer. God, as we come to you, may we be ready to lose that which we need to lose, to come to your presence unhindered. And as we come before your word, may it be living and active within us and among us, so that we might not only know loss, but that we might also know gain. May we gain today what we need to, what each individual one of us stands in need of as we study your word together. So send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that these words that we read may be alive within us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. He, being Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In studying this text, this short group of verses this week, I was thinking about that word loss, the loss that's articulated when Jesus speaks of the way of the cross. And as it would happen, I trust Providence to be at work in some of these things. My church photo directory was open on my desk, and it was open to the first page. And as I was thinking about loss, I looked at that first page, and in alphabetical order, 
The first person in our photo directory is Margaret Abma, who died last February, 2019. I just skipped 2020. Maybe that was intentional. Alphabetically, the next names were Ken and Jean Osink. Ken, who we loved and who we lost in June. The very next name, once again, alphabetically, is Howard Bauman, December of 2018, called home to be with the Lord. That first row of pictures and names just hit me as I considered what loss looks like, that, that we experience loss, that we are people who experience grief. And as Pastor Audrey led us through, lament, we experience loss. And it was almost overwhelming to think not only just of our perspective of any one of us looking at that directory, but to know that each and every person in that directory has also a certain autobiography that they could write of loss, also of great gains. Because even on this first page, almost in a desperate search for some good news, looking down a little bit further, I could see Ross and Sarah Bexford holding David, but Emmeline was not here yet. I go over a little bit further in that row and I see Caitlin Blackmer thinking both of a wedding coming up and also of the loss of her mother-in-law-to-be just two weeks ago. I started flipping through the pages. Familiar faces, those who are with us, those who are no longer with us. And it put me in touch with just how much we experience loss. And also, as people of faith, mindful that even as we say our goodbyes to beloved saints, we have in mind, through faith by the grace of God, the gain that is theirs. Our loss and our pain and yet the gain that they have in our moment of loss. That is, they part from us, they are greeted on the other side of that great shore of life and death. It made me grateful to see, as I flipped through the directory, to think about those who have gone before, those who have shaped who, have shaped who we are today. And also, it made me aware of just how much growth is always in motion in every single place you go, that life is never static. We always live in an ongoing equation of gain and of loss. In the pages of this directory, even of just the number of us that there are, there are births and deaths. There are marriages and divorces. There are students and workers and retirees. There are those who have kind of arrived in their sweet spot in life and those who are still searching and longing for what might be next. We have losses and gains. And that each one of us, if we were to write out our testimony, could highlight moments of rejoicing and of also of grieving. But we don't like loss very much. And we're not meant to skip over it too quickly either. 
when life just doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to, or when things are really, really good, some of us almost get nervous when things are really good because it's like you almost expect for the other shoe to drop. Peter, in Mark chapter 8, had such an experience as this. Because where where we picked up today is right after Jesus has been talking with his disciples and has asked them, well, who do people say that I am? And teacher, healer, prophet, all good answers. But Peter is the one who picks up and gets the, the gold star answer and says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Savior. Peter, in that moment, gets it. He gets it right and understands that all of this is coming true and forward to him. And after that great mountaintop moment of realizing that Jesus is the Christ and being able to proudly proclaim to him, I know who you are. You are the Savior of the world. Then, shortly thereafter, Jesus starts to talk about loss, teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. To be rejected is a type of loss. To be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. Great loss. To be rejected, to be killed. Peter bristles against this type of loss and he pushes back against it. He pushes back against Jesus And if we could set, you know, maybe a type of Lenten bar for spiritual maturity, can you imagine having the audacity to rebuke Jesus? They have that type of relationship. That as Jesus is talking about this loss and rejection, Peter's like, no, this can't be it. This cannot be the way things go from here. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And of course, Jesus rebukes Peter right back. We as the reader might have an advantage over Peter. We can think things through in real time. We don't have to worry about getting tongue-tied or, or anything like that. When Peter pushes against this loss, what he's hearing is the rejection and the death. And his soul laments that and pushes back against it. But plainly in verse 31, it also says after, after he will be killed, after three days... He will rise again. We might almost wonder if, if Peter somehow missed that part, if, if, if he got so caught up in the loss that he couldn't even think ahead to what might be gained or couldn't wrap his mind around the resurrection. We've experienced loss. We've experienced rejection. We don't like these things. But to hear of the resurrection, well, this didn't quite sink in with Peter. It's as if he's almost unaware of the gains that are also being spoken of. But with his regular spiritual audacity, he pushes back against Jesus because he doesn't like what he's hearing. Have you ever been in the same spot as Peter? You don't like what you're hearing, you don't like what's happened, what has unfolded has been full of pain. And there is grief and there is loss. And we are right to fully lament that 
and to not short-circuit any kind of grief that we experience. But Jesus also has a correction for Peter in this. And to us especially, it's about the harshest terms we can imagine being rebuked in. That Jesus turns around, looks at his disciples, they're all there, and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's like the last thing I would want Jesus to say to me. Get behind me, Satan. Now, we, we should understand something about this. Um, Jesus is not confused and somehow thinks that, that the devil has, you know, overtaken Peter and is puppeteering Peter in this moment. But what he is noting to Peter in the way that Peter is thinking through his concerns, thinking about human concerns and not the concerns of God, what, what Jesus is pointing out to Peter and what he is rebuking him with is not that he has become the devil, but that he's taking a page out of the devil's book. Satan is the accuser, the one who twists things. If we read Matthew or Luke's um, narration of the temptations of Jesus, the one who takes something good and entices it into something unhealthy, the one who takes words and manipulates them, The one who leads astray, not always in bold and brash ways, but in silent, subtle ways, just turning a little bit within our hearts. Peter is rebuked as one who has gotten focused on the wrong concerns. And that doesn't mean he has to give up his grief of what Jesus has told him. It doesn't mean that it's not heavy. But it does mean very clearly that Jesus is intervening in Peter's life and telling him, you've got the wrong concerns. You're twisting things up a little bit here. You're not seeing the full picture. Healthy desires become unhealthy temptations when they get misplaced and out of order. Hmm. Kind of makes me think about Lent where sometimes we practice giving something up for a season. And not that we're giving up something bad necessarily, but that we're giving up something that we enjoy and appreciate as a small practice of saying, well, God matters to me more than chocolate or coffee or alcohol, right? So I can give that up. Or maybe I'm just a little bit hungry and it reminds me to pray. Or or maybe we take something on to try to gain something in this season. Lent might be as simple as putting our priorities in order or testing by action if the things that we say are really lined up with how we act and live. Satan is a clever accuser who has all kinds of pages in his book of how to turn things around or turn them sideways or upside down in ways that aren't helpful ways in which people that we might otherwise get along with, we can be turned against them as enemies. These are all the works of the accuser who twists and manipulates. And this is where Jesus draws a firm line. It is interesting that Jesus does not rebuke Peter for his rebuke, that that honesty before God is not where the problem was but rather it was the concerns that were out of order. And so he says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. You twisting things up, 
You're, you're making the wrong priorities. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I wonder if Jesus were to audit our lives, if there would be some priorities that are maybe out of place, out of tune, off key. And yet we are people who will experience loss. And when we feel loss, I believe we also will experience temptation. When we have a loss of patience, there's a great opportunity for us to also lose our temper. When there is a loss of life, we may be tempted to compensate or to numb our pain in ways that aren't healthy. When there is a loss of friendship, we feel that in our soul and and may be too quick to turn away from connection or to bar ourselves off. Loss prevents all kinds of opportunities for temptation. And this is where Jesus is pushing on us. Jesus is explaining the way of the cross that there will be loss and that there will also be gain. I think the devil has two ideas for how we deal with grief and loss because Jesus did not make a mistake in speaking plainly about how he'd be rejected and killed. I think the two temptations, well, one is to short-circuit our grief or loss, to push it down, push it away, try to move on without any kind of grief or lament, to move on too quickly, or to numb our pain, or to avoid it, or to try to just get so busy that we don't have to think about it. Short-circuiting our grief or loss is not a way that we bring it before God. Or the other temptation, if one is to be short-circuited, the other is to get tunnel-visioned. And I think this is Peter's issue here. He can only hear about the loss and rejection, and it bothers him, it shakes him to his core. I think the devil delights that our pain can be short-circuited or we can get tunnel-visioned into it, that we won't see around it. And, the only, and there is a time where we will be pretty focused up front. That's all we can think about. But as we grieve, we move forward. And we have those around us who speak life into our life so that our grief is not short-circuited and that it's not the end of our story. Loss. Loss is hard. And Jesus moves into speaking that the way of the cross will necessitate a certain amount of loss. We hear again, first in verses 31 through 33, about being rejected and killed. And then we hear what might frighten some of us in in verse 38, being ashamed of Jesus and his words because they might bring about loss for us. But what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to have everything go their way, to have everything they've ever wanted and to forfeit their soul, to have everything from a worldly concern perspective perfect and yet to lose ourselves in it. Jesus plainly asks, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Only Jesus could save our souls. 
Only Jesus can hold the capacity that we have for loss in our hearts and to be able to hold us gently in it. What can we exchange for our souls? Nothing. And when we remember that we, like Peter, are tempted by the devil, we might remember that when we think about our sin, we are addicted. We're hopelessly addicted to our sin. And yet when Jesus comes into our life, some of the loss that Jesus wants to see happen in us is that loss of addiction to sin. The loss of the chains that hold us down so that we can experience true freedom, that the way of the cross is to lose so that there can be gains. And that the loss will be painful. That it's not easy. What good is it for us to gain the whole world, yet forfeit our soul? But rather, whoever wants to be a disciple of Jesus must deny themselves, which involves loss, and take up their cross, that's painful and heavy, and follow me. That's obedience. Picking up our cross, simple. So simple, and yet also brings profound loss. That's why Lent is such a gift of a season. Because we're practicing for, well, the unpredictable in life. In the very simple practice of giving something up, we're on our own terms with some control at a low-stakes venture. We are practicing giving something up to experience a certain amount of loss. In Lent, we do that on our own terms. We do that between us and God, and maybe with just someone around us that we trust for accountability. But we practice loss on our terms. And we do that for 40 days, and then we can choose where we go from there. But I wonder if the practice of loss is especially helpful so that when the unexpected pains of loss hit, when, when life gives us a sucker punch and we feel it in the depths of our souls, if we have been people who have practiced loss, that we can receive this and that even though it was lower stakes during Lent, we've worked through this before, we have experienced loss and hopefully for the reason of gains at the foot of the cross. And if we've practiced maybe taking something on, if we've practiced being aware of the presence of God, if we've chosen a, a discipline of prayer or of encouragement or of just trying to be mindful of where have you seen God today or starting your day by asking, God, show me where you'll be today. If we've practiced noticing the presence of God around us and even within us, then when loss hits us hard, we also have the practice of gains at our disposal. We will always live in an equation of gains and losses. There's a time where we grow older and stronger. And then, as it is called, the great tipping point, where we are still growing older but not growing physically stronger. It was at that point that I was finally able to beat my dad at ping pong. But we live in an equation of gains and losses.
We practice loss in small steps because it will prepare our hearts for greater losses that we would not choose and could not predict. And in fact, losses that I do not believe God inflicts on us. We also practice the presence of God so that when we flip through a directory and we see people we miss, we also think about what's been gained that we celebrate and that we see within this community a family of care and of rejoicing, that we learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and lament with those who lament. And we do so maybe just by learning to give things up. Hold up a mirror, if you will, to your own soul. And what's worth giving up? What do we not want to lose the most? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we're reminded that when Jesus spoke of the way of the cross, that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is kind of secretive about what's going to happen. And yet in verse 31, he speaks rather plainly about it. When we think about loss, when we think about what we give up or what's taken from us, we are reminded that Jesus gave up his life for you because you are worth it. Because your value, your inherent worth was worth it for God himself to walk among us, to die for us, to look at us even in our addiction to sin and say, I want you on my team. To look at us with all of our bad habits, with all of the hidden dark parts of our heart and say, you matter to me, and your redemption is worth the price of my life. Jesus gave up his life for us because we are worth it to him. What would we give up to practice that kind of way of the cross? To say, Jesus, you gave up your life for me. To practice that to experience it, what can I give up for you? And that when we experience loss that we did not ask for, that we did not want, and that we would not wish on others, in those such moments too, we know that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who identifies with our loss, who feels our pain, and who calls us to the foot of the cross, not as this familiar symbol that we get used to almost, but to say, child, your pain is welcome with me. Hide it not. Bring it to me honestly the way Peter brought it to me honestly. And remember in all of it that you are worth it to me, that I want you to be with me, and that I see you in all of your fullness and all of your goodness and long for you to be whole. The Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with all of the holy angels, says verse 38. There will be pain, there will be loss, and there will be great gains, gains that we cannot imagine, gains that we cannot hope for, gains that are beyond our capacity of mind. We appreciate those all the more 
when we have experienced and practiced loss and that it puts us in touch with the way of the cross. So friends, remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, looks down upon us, looks down upon us and says, I want you to be with me. And that Jesus, the good shepherd, has welcomed home many saints. And the phrase that I just think of more and more with loss is that when Jesus looks at us, it's not just a bad thing of loss, but that the hope that Jesus has for us is that we come face to face with our sins, with our pain, and that we lose that at the foot of the cross so that we can be gathered to the arms of the Good Shepherd. Friends, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray. God, we may bristle in our souls against loss. We may feel pain in our heart. And when we do so, you call us to the feet of the cross where you can say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, in our moments of loss, may you give us rest. In our moments of grief, may you give us peace. And may we do all of this to your glory and honor, trusting you when we can't see the way ahead, leaning on you when we don't have the strength, and loving you with all that is within our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. In just a moment, we'll turn to a time of congregational prayer. Um, there's two prayer updates that we have uh, this morning that actually fit well with the themes of loss. Uh, one is the prayer quilt out in the Reach Out Center um, for the Vancouvering family. We shared last week um, that uh, they lost their son in a snowmobiling accident. So there's a prayer quilt for the Vancouvering family. I invite you to at home, say a prayer for them. Um, and if you're here, to say a, a prayer and tie a knot symbolizing your prayers. The other loss that we share today is that yesterday, Gloria Searsma passed away. Um, Bill and Jackie um, were able to contact yesterday and share. And so we will um, be sharing funeral updates and services once it's all planned. But at this time, we are going to lift the Gloria Searsma and her family in prayer as well as they have experienced a loss. May it be so that those who are mourned will be blessed, for they will be comforted. Friends, as we now offer up our congregational prayer, we're going to do so again, um, thinking of loss, thinking of lament. 
Uh, lament in scripture does not mean it could be worse. Lament in scripture means it could be better. And I wish it was better. We will pray for the Vancouvering family, for the Searsma family, and also, too, as we come up on uh, the one-year anniversary of COVID in our world, we're also going to pray for that, too, and lament together. It could be better. Let's pray. Merciful God, we need you so much. When we look around, we see disease everywhere. When we look within, we see our sin. You desire truth in our inward being. And in this season of Lent, we take an honest look at the smudges on our souls. Wash us, we pray, and we will be whiter than snow. But as the winter snow melts from the landscape around us, we see the mess lying beneath it. The scrubby grass, the bits of litter, the withered, unraked leaves. Our hearts and souls collect their clutter, too. Little grudges, occasional envy, a bad habit or two that we've always meant to clean up. Create clean hearts in us, God. Renew right spirits within us. Open our windows and spring clean our souls. Scour them with your grace and blow the fresh, brisk wind of your spirit through them. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. We need you so much. And we need each other, too. We're grateful for opportunities like this to gather together to sing and pray in communion with other Christians. As the coronavirus continues to force people away from each other, we're reminded that we were made by you for community. Be close to all of those whom this distance has pushed apart. Be close to those who feel too far from home. Guide all of us, our church, our community, our nation, and our world as we continue to try to do our work and live our lives under such disorienting circumstances. God, we remember, too, the disorientation being experienced by the Searsma and Vancouvering families. God, we lift before you TJ, Vancouvering, and family, and this loss out of order, this grief magnified. God, we lift up the Searsma family as well. We thank you for long life, but still hold before you the loss experienced. God, in these disorienting circumstances, Draw us together when it's tempting to be pushed apart. We are tired, God. The stress of the pandemic doesn't replace our ordinary burdens, but only adds to our fatigue. God, give us patience and stamina. Be especially close to those who are affected or have been afflicted with the coronavirus. 
Do not cast them away from your presence. Give them strength and healing. Give them comfort. God, our world belongs to you. Our air belongs to you. The ears we use to hear, the mouths we use to sing, the minds we use to think and feel and pray, all yours. In your great mercy, contain this virus sweeping your good world. Spring clean that world. And while we're gathered here, we use the breath that you have given us to pray together the prayer that you've taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I invite the praise team um, to come forward and welcome the dismissal of our 4th through 12th graders to Sunday school. While that movement is happening, um, I am going to introduce to us a new song. This song is called, Jesus, You Have Called Us. And its words are inspired by the text that Pastor Stephen just preached from, Jesus, You Have Called Us. The chorus says, I will follow, so the I is me, I will follow, I will follow, I will follow where you lead. So I'm going to teach you the chorus uh, in just a second. And then I invite you to either listen to the verses or to, when you catch the tune, to sing along with us. But the chorus goes like this. I will follow. I will follow. I will follow where you lead. Will you try that with me? Let that be our prayer. Oh uh-huh. 
Friends, as we go from this place, we go with the losses that we carry in our hearts. We go with the cross of Christ before us. And we go with the gains of Christ's kingdom at mind. Will you rise for the benediction? Receive these closing words, benediction simply meaning blessing, that we go with a sense of God's blessing that the Lord Almighty looked upon us just as we are and said, I want you, I want you to be with me, that you may be with me where I am. I want you on my team because I love you and I care for you. And I want you to know, I want you to know how I see you. With this in mind, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his face towards you and give you Christ's everlasting and perfect peace, both now and forever. Amen. We give glory to God as a sign of the thanksgiving that we have in our hearts as we live our lives. So we'll sing the doxology in closing that we give glory to God in all parts of our lives. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God all creatures here below. Praise God above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in peace.
I don't know. <laughs>